This evening's scripture reading is going to be taken from Colossians, the first chapter, verses 3 through 8. And the scripture reads, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a reminder that um, tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock here in the, uh, the main auditorium, we are going to have the funeral for Arnold Briseño's mother, Mandy Briseño, and it's, uh, it'll be at 11 o'clock in here. And uh, for those of you that can make it, uh, you're going to be a great encouragement to Arnold and his sister and his brother and the rest of their family. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Fathers, we, uh, we think about this text tonight. We ask you to, to help us in our putting together of, of the salient points of this text in, in a way, Father, that it sticks with us as we go throughout this week, understanding the importance of what it means to hear your gospel and what it means to be a recipient of grace. And as we do that, Father, study tonight, we, we pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray, Father, that you will help us to, to retain this information and not just retain it, but that it become catalyst and a trigger to transforming us into more profound and faithful people for your kingdom. Thank you for all of the blessings that we have in Christ. We're thankful for our shepherds, for our deacons. We are thankful for our church. We're thankful for the opportunity to come together and to, to sing and to pray and to study, and to encourage, and to embrace each other. We pray, Father, that our church always be a light in this community, and that people, seeing the light of our love for one another, are going to be drawn toward you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the typical biblical trivia questions when you're playing a game that comes uh, uh, to... Uh, you know, playing a Bible game, is who is Eutychus? And the answer is, Eutychus is the young man that fell from the window while Paul was preaching. Acts chapter 20. For preacher types like myself, it always brings up the question of why do people fall asleep in church? Well, sometimes it's bad preaching. Sometimes it's just overall, over-the-top boring. Sometimes it has to do with preparation. We're up really, really late on a Saturday night. We don't get enough sleep. We get up early on Sunday morning to come to church, and we struggle with staying awake. And in the past 35 years, I've seen lots of people sleep in church, and there are many that, that fight it, and you can tell because they go, and they're just kind of nodding off. Many try to fake it. You know, they're just kind of 
put their head in a way where if the preacher, if it's as if the if the preacher sees you sleeping, then you're in trouble. Let alone you know God, it doesn't matter. But you know you try to hide the, hide it, and many just go with it. I've you know seen guys just kind of and women too just kind of stretch out and fold their arms in. They're getting some shut eye. But here's the thing, and, and all of that is natural, and it's human, and you have a good sense of humor with it and all of that. But the one that is troublesome, not only to myself, but to, to other ministers and teachers, uh, some people, it seems, sleep with their eyes open. And it's not that they're sawing logs, it's not that they're asleep, but they're on autopilot. The Word doesn't shake their soul. The singing of praise to God doesn't revive their energy and their enthusiasm for all things of the kingdom of God. There was uh, some years ago, probably closer to 25 years now, that seems like it was just yesterday, I, had, uh, I was part of a Bible study that converted a young Brazilian man by the name of Mikey. I didn't know what his real name was. It was Jose Carlos, but I didn't know his real name for uh, several months. He was just Mikey to us, and the reason he was Mikey is because he looked just like Mike Tyson. And so we just called him Mikey, and he was coming to the study, and I was studying with him. We were open scripture together, and he came to a point where he decided that everything that he was learning about God and about the kingdom and what Christ had done and about grace and, and, and about baptism and repentance and the Spirit and the Word and all of that, it just all made sense. And he decided one day, one Sunday afternoon, that he wanted to be baptized into Christ. He wanted to align his life up with the will of God, have his sins washed away, all of them, received the Spirit, all of that. And so that afternoon, before we had our assembly that evening, he comes to the office at the church, and we just start talking about it, and we're just happy, happy, happy. And I start talking to him about what happens when the Spirit enters your life. And you know how I get, sometimes I just, you know, I just, I just start running with it, and, and I'm just talking about this and that and this and that and this and that when it comes to the Spirit. And finally, I stop long enough to take a breath, and I look over, and Mikey is just crying. And, and I thought maybe I had said something that he didn't understand or he was having second thoughts. And I said, you know, keep boy, what, what's wrong? And he just, he, he kind of pulled himself together and says, et tan bonito, et tan bonito. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that's when I knew that he had not only gotten a hold of God, but God had gotten a hold of him. There, there, there's nothing more thrilling then when you see someone put the pieces together and they believe. And the word becomes vibrant and dynamic and beautiful. And it's like they have a new lease on life and they, they smile and there is joy and there is happiness. And Paul had that same feeling every time he went into a city. Now imagine this. He goes into a city where people had not only never heard of Jesus before, but even had to be instructed about God. And every time he preached, and every time people responded to that word, that that message that they were hearing in a pristine place for the first time, and they put it together, and they understood it, and they responded to it, Paul was just thrilled. Listen, listen again to these five or six verses out of Colossians 1. Paul is writing to a church that, that he's, he's never been to. They, they heard the gospel through Epaphras, who had heard it from Paul. 
but he knows that, that there are people who have given their lives, have, have put everything that they, they, they own and everything that they value, they have put all of that into the kingdom of God. So he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, stepping out of that passage for just a second, think about how you feel when you receive one of those little pink encouragement cards in the mail. You know, maybe things are not going very well in your life. Some things have transpired that are not very happy. They're, they're the kinds of things that maybe have induced some grief. And then you get one of those cards, and you open it up, and before you even read it, it changes the way you think about your day. There's just something about the color of that pink card that just sort of captures you there immediately. But at the same time, it's very encouraging to know that you're not alone, that there are people who are not only thankful for you and feel connected to you and are engaged in your life at an emotional level that leads them to pull out a card and to fill out the, the card with an encouragement message and to sign it and to address it and to, and to send it into the church office so it can get to you. But not only are you thankful that they're engaged with you at that level, but also that they are praying for you. You know, over the years, when people come to the office and they're struggling with some issue in life that just has them in a vice grip and seems to be squeezing all of the joy out of them, what they always ask for is to pray for me. Pray for me, Mark. Will you pray for me? I remember sitting in a, uh, in a shepherd's meeting one evening, and uh, somebody had come in and was sharing uh, the events that had transpired in their life in, in such a way that, uh, that they, they felt crushed and they were losing a little bit of hope and they didn't know what to do next and they had felt led to meet with their shepherds and that they were doing. And it was a very emotional meeting and it, was, it wasn't a very long meeting with that individual but it was a very emotional meeting and there were not a few tears that were shed by that individual and I just remember Alan Babcock looking that person in the eye and saying, I commit to pray for you every day. This describes Paul when he thinks about the church in Colossae. You know, Paul, you know, after the Messiah, Paul, in my opinion, the greatest of all the theologians, just second only to the Christ. But Paul is not only a theologian which, you know, with all of his great learning and all of his great intelligence and all of his deep thinking sometimes confuses us, at least it confused Peter from time to time. He was not just a theologian, he was also a missionary. And he was a missionary because 
God sent him into the lives of people all over the world. And sometimes he, he was put into prison from time to time because of his engagement of the gospel and of the kingdom of God in the lives of people. Paul was not locked up in some ivory tower. And as a missionary, he was involved in the lives of people. He even felt a connection for Christians that he had never met before. I mean, just think, I mean, we have the same opportunity today. Think about the mission reports that come to us in the mail or come to us in our church bulletin or when missionaries show up. We have the opportunity to hear the stories about people that we have never met, that we have never shared the gospel with, but have received the gospel and have given themselves to God and have entered his kingdom and to be thrilled and to engage in their life the way Paul engages in the life of the people in Colossae. Paul never treated a missionary report as junk mail because he didn't know them. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, listen, in fact, open your Bibles up and mark these words. In Colossians 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how hard I am, and here's the word, contending for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. He says in chapter 1 and verse 9, For this reason, since the day that we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Go to chapter 4 and verse 12. Epaphras who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Why exert all of this effort in prayer if, if prayer is, is hollow and, and without effect and it's just words and, and they're empty words? Why does Paul do this for Christians if prayer doesn't work? It's because it does work. And it does have an effect on the life and the bearing of a new Christian in the way that they live and begin to live their life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. So he prays for them. And this is why prayer requests are put in the announcement sheet. This is why we go to the trouble of not just at the end of every sermon telling you personally, face-to-face, even though we're this large church family taking the time to talk, and here we go with the, the technology again. <laughs> Daylight savings time. We messed up on our timers uh, in, in the sound room and, uh, the, uh, with the lights. Uh, this is why those prayer requests are, are put in the announcement sheet. This is why we go to the trouble of talking about this stuff like a family at the end of every sermon. It, it's why we put the names of the new converts and the new family members in our bulletin. We pray for these new families. We pray for these new believers. We pray for these people who are going through struggles to not become discouraged and, and to fall to Satan. Why does, Paul, why, why does Satan use discouragement? It's because it works. We pray that, that these folk continue to grow in their faith until they become mature in Christ or they become solidified in their thinking about the kingdom. We need to look people in the eye and say to them that we are going to wrestle in prayer for them. The big thing that Paul prays for is that these new Christians understand 
the grace of the Christ. As we saw last week, there were those in Colossae who were teaching these young Christians that Christ was a good start, that they needed to add elements to their faith in order to be mature, in order to be real Christians. And Paul starts at the very beginning of this letter with a couple of facts that they need to know. And the first is the gospel of grace stands on its own. Listen again to verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You know what is good news about the good news? Is that it's good news. That it's true news. From the beginning, the Christians in Colossae understood that their salvation was God's initiative. That was a new message. None of the world religions taught that. The thing that set Christianity apart from all of the other religions in the world is not that you can be saved. Every religion, even in our own day, you think about it, every religion outside of, of Christianity teaches that you can be saved. The difference between Christianity, the, 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 uh, the faith that, that brings us into the kingdom of God, is not that you are saved, but that you are saved by grace. Now, we have difficulty receiving something or anything in this life when we don't have to pay for it. If someone gives you a card, uh, a gift card out of love, or they give you some kind of a gift out of love that they have for you, and they want to be generous with you, what's the first thing you want to do? Reciprocate. You want to pay it back. They buy you lunch, then you feel obligated to do what the next time you go out to lunch? Pay for them. We do this because getting something that we don't have to pay for makes us feel really, really uncomfortable. Just because Paul says that it's impossible for us to add something to grace, it doesn't stop us from trying to do that. But one of, in, maybe one of the weirdest illustrations that you've ever heard about the standalone nature of grace. Do you remember that old uh, sitcom from the 70s, Happy Days? Richie Cunningham, Mr. and Mrs. C. The main character, though, or at least the coolest character on the show is who? Fonzie, right? And you remember in the opening credits when they're playing Rock Around the Clock and uh, you know all of that, there's this short little six-second scene in which Fonzie, leather jacket, hair, all of that, he walks into his office, which is the bathroom at Arnold's, takes out his comb as if he's going to comb his hair. Before he does it, he looks in the mirror, realizes it's perfection, and he goes like this, puts the comb back in his pocket and leaves. Grace is sort of like that. You can't do anything to make it better or to have more effect in your life than it already does. The real reason we have trouble with grace might be because we don't trust it. Which leads us to the second point. The gospel of grace is not really culturally specific to any particular part of the world. Again, verse 6. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Humans all over the world, in every country, in every culture, in every time, in every language, they are hearing the same message. When the Jesus plus something else crowd came to town, they started, they started to tell these new Christians that, okay, Jesus is a good start, but now you need to get down to business. You need some special diets, you need some special days, you need some special information. It's the gospel plus some special knowledge or some special diet or some special days. And Paul says that is ludicrous. No way is that true. Look at verse 23. 
He says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now that is an incredibly bold statement. What Paul is contending is that the gospel is an absolute truth, and not only an absolute truth, but it's a universal truth. It is absolute for all time, and it's universal. It goes into every culture in every country. Now, we in the modern Western world, we, we just hate hearing that. We want truth to be whatever is true for us. And Paul says, nope. The gospel is a truth for you and a truth for everyone else in the world. The truth was bearing fruit. That is, it was changing lives all over the world. And so it was no small thing for him to write to the the Roman church later that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was God's power unto salvation. Paul had seen with his own eyes that that truth that was preached in Jerusalem and then later in Antioch and then there in Asia Minor and was finally going to end up in Rome as Paul was trying to get to Spain, it was the same message and the message was bearing fruit in all of those places. That gospel had power wherever he went to change people's lives. You know, when you think about it, what is it? when you think about the world as it is, and I'm not talking about the Western world, but the world, the globe, What is the most appropriate thing that you can give the world? Make it a better place. Well, how about a computer? Some places don't have electricity. Well, how about a car? That way people can go from place to place. Well, not everybody has gasoline. Not everybody has roads. The gospel is the most appropriate thing that you can give the world. The gospel is the only seed that can be planted anywhere and see it grow and to see it bear fruit and to see it change people's lives. And one of the ways that you know that you have a handle on the gospel is when all of that blessing that has come into you because of the gospel is something that you want other people to know. In the Living Bible, verse 6 is put this way. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and changing lives everywhere just as it changed yours that very first day you heard it and understood about God's great kindness to sinners. And then the last thing we'll say tonight is uh, the gospel of grace is is that life changer. Never forget that. One of the things that makes grace powerful is not just that it's true, but that it's a powerful truth. People all the time, I've had conversations from the very first day of my ministry until this last week, people struggling with with believing, believing that the gospel makes that much of a difference in changing their relationship with God. Paul writes to this church in Colossae, the great news that he's heard that they've heard the gospel and that they believe the gospel. How did he know that they had heard it and that they had believed it? It's because they were changed. Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, 
just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. I just think that one of the easy ways to tell whether or not the gospel is being effective in your life is that after hearing it and embracing it and believing, you know it's having an effect in your life when faith, hope, and love begin to grow in great measure in your life. Which means that that the fruit of the gospel, what the gospel does in changing you is something that's public. It's something that, that that's visible. Paul is writing to this church and saying, you, you received the gospel and I know that you understood it and that you have believed it and that it's got a hold of you the way that you've got a hold of it because you're different. People are being more patient with each other in that church in Colossae. They're, they're being more sacrificial. They're being more generous. Their marriages are being strengthened. Their families are being strengthened. People are being more forgiven. They're being more patient with one another. They're more kind. They're more self-controlled. They're kind to each other in a way that just creates a bond in them that only the gospel and only God's grace can build. And then secondly, they have their hope on this place called heaven. They're heavenly minded and not worldly minded. The the big question I want to end with tonight is this. When you you think about your, your time as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, and the years that you have invested in the study of God's Word and in worship of His greatness and His presence and His love and goodness, kindness that's been shown to you through His gospel. Are you passionate about the thought of being in heaven with God for all of eternity? You know, we spend 10 to 30 minutes reading Scripture and prayer each day, maybe. We spend half the day making money and then the rest of the day enjoying and repairing what we spend it on. And so one of the reasons that people fall asleep in church is bad preaching. Another reason is bad listening. Churches are not supposed to be filled with people who come and hear and then go out and live as if they haven't. What Paul is grateful for when it comes to the church in Colossae is that God's will was being done. That somehow somebody who understood the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached, took it into his hometown and preached it. And he told the truth about God's kingdom and about God's grace. And people began to think about it and wonder about it. And as as Epaphras prayed about it, there were people that began to respond. And they wanted to respond to the kingdom in such a way that, that God's salvation came to them. And God's spirit came into their life. Sins were being forgiven. New relationships were being forged. And lives were being changed. And Paul heard about that, heard that there was this movement in a town called Colossae that had been started by words, the words of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the good news of the kingdom of God. And because 
those words were being spoken. That city would never be the same. But it would be filled with kingdom people. People who were not striving to earn their way into some kind of defined salvation with whatever religion they happened to be listening to. But they were living their lives worthy of the grace that they had received and could never pay back in a million years. But they were so overwhelmed by the love of God that they dedicated their lives to living a life worthy of that love. And that's what we're called to do in San Antonio. That's what we're called to be as a church. Not only a place where people can come and find fellowship and find instruction that strengthens their faith and helps them to understand more deeply and more profoundly the truth of God, not just the truths of God, but the truth of God, His presence, His reality, His supreme character in all of the universe. The church exists to, to encourage people and to help people to grow up in the faith, but the church also exists as, as proof that the gospel is true. And as those words are spoken in a pluralistic community like our own, and people begin to hear those words, the question they ask themselves is, is something that you get for free when it looks like you don't have any skin in the game? Is something that you get for free like grace? Is it worthwhile? Does it have impact? Does it, does it have... Uh, an effect on people's lives in such a way that you can discern it, discern that they're different. And what Paul would say is that the gospel that's changing lives all over the world is the same gospel that changes lives in this community. And the community at large looks on the community of faith. And what they need to see is the faith and the hope and the love that changes because of His grace. Jeff will lead us in a song right now. We offer an invitation to anyone who has a need tonight. We'll have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there's some way that we can counsel or pray with you or study with you tonight or whenever this week is convenient for you, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.